As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess Dory. And we take deep, irreverent dives into early American history, usually. Usually? Yes. This episode is more of a literal deep dive, and it's different than any we've done before. Careful how you use the word literal now. Oh, no. I got it. Don't worry. <laughs> you got it down? <laughs> I think I got it. Okay. Yeah. It's not just me. You know this now. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know I know. someone reached out in solidarity with you over yes. my frustration of the use of literal versus figurative. So I'm not alone. This episode is a little more of a literal deep dive, and you'll understand what that means soon. And it's I have doubts. That's all I'm saying. It's different than any episode we've done before because it starts a little bit closer to home for us. Hmm. Closer to home. So we live in Los Angeles, and we're used to digging into stories that took place on the East Coast, like 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. This story takes place a little more recently on the West Coast. How recent we talking here? Oh, you'll see. And it starts, it starts just down the street from us. Oh. This is a story in three acts. Act one, the avenue. Several times a week, I drive past an intersection of Ventura Boulevard. Ventura Boulevard. It's a pretty ordinary corner in Sherman Oaks. There's a guitar center on one corner, a tattoo parlor named American Ink Tattoo Studio across the street from it. And there's a north-south street that ends at this intersection. And every time I drive past it and I see the sign for this street, it gives me a little shiver. Why are you literally shivering? The name of the street is Calhoun Avenue. Oh, yes. Yes. Did you did you take a literal or figurative deep dive into the street name? Because oh. I pass it too and I think of you and I think he's probably looking that up as we speak. Oh, I took a figurative deep dive into <laughs> a literal deep dive. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not deep diving anywhere. So that's how, figurative. How dare you? It shocks me. It just shocks me being like so literary that you would mix up these things. Okay. All right. So you're criticizing me for saying that death was literally in the air at a funeral. It's not in the air. It's in the... Unless you're like... Miasma. You can't really compare that to literal facts unless like someone's being cremated and you're breathing it in. Okay, that's a little too literal. There needs to be another word for that, which just means like on the nose. On the nose? Or in the nose in that case, I guess. Okay. You know, you move on with your bad self. All right. So John C. Calhoun, who we've talked about before in bits and pieces, he was a vice president for both John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, and he was the secretary of evil. (laughs) (laughs) That is based on his looks uh, and as well his Mm -hmm. beliefs. Yes. So everything, his whole legacy. Yes. Yes. Literally. Um, So I don't know if you've looked at a picture of him recently. No, I've seen the ones you've shown me. Would you like to? I don't. I I have him branded into my brain. Okay. I don't Um, need to see another picture, but do check it out on the show notes. Howard will put it there for you, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, so if you haven't seen John C. Calhoun, he looks like 
Bill Hader doing an impression of Doc Brown. <laughs> yes, like that, but add a dead rat or a sunken rat element. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you've got it. Yeah, I was going to say he, he looks like the Muppet Sam the Eagle mm-hmm. if he turned human and died. In a pool as a rat. Okay, yeah, I like the rat pool thing. I mean, it doesn't um, have to be a pool, just a drowned rat. I know this is awful, but this is what this man looks like. He and looks- he didn't help. He didn't smile. I know no one smiled then, but like he didn't, he looked scary. And he maybe he meant to. Yeah, he looks like uh, if the guy with the little head in Beetlejuice was normal sized and enslaved people. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that simile. He looks like if a ghost from the Haunted Mansion <laughs> stared right at the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Thank you for that simile. Yeah. So what I'm saying is his face is unpleasant and his neck is very hairy. Ew. Okay. Not a fan of hairy bodies. <laughs> so I don't I don't feel bad saying that he's terrifying looking because his inside was pretty rotten too. Well, I, I just don't like hair on bodies. Okay, noted. I'm, I'm very thankful that you're smooth. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. I'm glad. Like a baby. Yes. Like a, <laughs> my whole body is like a series of babies' bottoms. <laughs> yeah, a series. One after the other. Yes. <laughs> Bottomless bottoms. <laughs> Many of them. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it takes hours just to powder me up. <laughs> I do every morning. Yep. <laughs> so Calhoun, he had a vile influence on the nation. He was this intelligent, well-spoken communicator, and he laid out what he believed to be a rational argument for why the institution of slavery was, as he called it, a positive good. Yeah. Vomit. He he didn't wring his hands about it and say it was terrible out of one side of his mouth while continuing to benefit from it, like, say, Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. No, John C. Calhoun leaned into the racism. He embraced it and he tried to justify it in ways that appealed to the absolute dregs of humanity and made them feel like their bigotry was not just acceptable, but righteous. Sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah. So he was a piece of shit, and I think it's wonderful right now that places like Lake Calhoun in Minneapolis, uh, which my old friend Bob White brought to my attention, places that are named for Calhoun are starting to change their name. That's great. Um, Another place in Savannah, Georgia called Calhoun Square. It's got like a survey out to residents of like, what should we be named? And the answer is not that. Um, (laughs) So some people might say, oh, that's erasing history. Uh, yeah, I'm so sick of that argument. Yeah, that's like saying that an, an EMT treating someone's wound is erasing history. Like it's not; it's healing. Yeah, and it's developing. I mean, we you can't you can't stay in the same place. Like we learn things, yeah. and we learn what's the best way to treat a society. And it's not it's not t- having their oppressors tower over them. Yeah, you can't in you, a statue you, form. You literally can't erase or change history. No, it's but there. <laughs> you can change what you celebrate. Yeah, exactly. I like that. Yeah. It's not the history's not going anywhere, but you can change how you celebrate it for sure. Yeah. I like that. So the idea, the thought that a street in Los Angeles in my neighborhood <laughs> could be named for this real life villain was unsettling. So I had to find out if that was the case. I had to find out where did Calhoun Avenue get its name? Mm-hmm. I knew I knew it. I didn't know you were going to make an episode on it, but I knew you were going to look into it. Oh, I didn't either. To say the least. But let me tell you that getting to that answer was a journey through 100 years and down to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. What? Yeah. Say what? 
So that little emoticon with the head explosion, uh-huh. that's what I'm feeling. That's you? That's me right now. Nice. So I did a bunch of Google searches, and one of them I did was for the name John C. Calhoun and Sherman Oaks. Oh, man. Calhoun never set foot in California, but I thought that I might find some kind of link. What I found was an article from the Los Angeles Times in 1986 about a man named Dan Purdy, who lived in Sherman Oaks at the time. Okay. He was a welder and a mechanic, but it was his hobby that's important here. He was a longtime member, at one time even the president, of the California Wreck Divers. They're a group of people who scuba dive to shipwrecks off the California coast. So we are literally diving. We are. Oh, um, phew, I thought you didn't understand. Oh, well, I understand. More than you know. <laughs> Apparently. You're um, like an evil genius. <laughs> um, the California wreck divers scuba dive to shipwrecks off the California coast. They explore them, and they recover what little artifacts they can. On one dive in 1984 off the coast of Lompoc, which is a bit north of Santa Barbara. That's where I've been skydiving a few times. Really? So you, went, did, you did kind of a deep dive. I didn't. I didn't go deep. <laughs> I well, went. I went from high up. <laughs> that's a deep. If can, starting from the airplane, that's pretty deep. Deep into the air. Air. <laughs> yeah. So on one dive in 1986 off the coast of Lompoc, Dan Purdy. He was almost out of air. Not like dangerously out of air, but it was like, hey, dive's almost over. Okay. It was the last day of a four-day dive. He was ready to pack it in when he noticed something shiny embedded in a mound on the seafloor. He got closer, and he noticed some ornate engraved scrolling on the object. Mm -hmm. He chipped at the ground with his hammer, and it came loose. It was an 18-carat gold ring. Calhoun? When he got to the surface, he saw that it was a Navy signet ring from 1906 with the initials WLC on the front along with engravings of mermaids and sailing ships. Really? Yeah. It was ornate. So it was a sailing ring. It was a Navy ring, yeah. Ooh. This was a big find. Um, a personal object like this, it's incredibly rare to find something like that. And on the inside of the ring, still totally legible, Oh wow! was the full name William Lowndes Calhoun. Holy mackerel. Um, so Calhoun, he was not only the captain of the ship whose remains Purdy was exploring, but he was the great-grandson of John C. Calhoun. It turns out that John... I have no words. (laughs) Well, it turns out that John C. Calhoun didn't just spread his ideas far and wide. He also spread his seed quite a bit. Ew. There are are a lot of Calhoun descendants. I don't love how you make it so graphic. I'm sorry. Um, But Calhoun... Are they all assholes? Um... No. Okay. I'm going to say no. That's great. Um, some of them crop up in different places, reality shows. What? Um, I saw a tweet the other day from a college professor saying that he just lectured about Calhoun to a descendant of Calhoun. Oh. So that's, a, that's an interesting experience. That's an awkward PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. Who has the power? Yeah. Oh, I meant like the Microsoft PowerPoint. Oh. Deck. You said that's an, in- that's an interesting power. I said that's an awkward PowerPoint. Oh, I didn't hear the point. I oh, just okay. heard. <laughs> Often you don't when I'm talking. <laughs> I find. I find the same thing. So maybe we have a problem here. Interesting. But this particular descendant, William L. Calhoun, he wasn't so bad. He was a Navy officer who was the captain of the USS Young, which was part of the greatest disaster ever to happen to the U.S. Navy during peacetime. 
What? The Honda Point disaster. It happened 100 years ago this year on September 8th, 1923. Oh, wow. So let me tell you how this ship and that ring got to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. So we know. We know how. Oh, we know. Act two, the Honda Point disaster. William Lowndes Calhoun, or Uncle Willie, as some people call him, uh, he was 39 years old at the time. He was the captain of the USS Young. Uh, this was the first ship he was captaining. Uh, it was one of 14 ships in Destroyer Squadron 11. So this is who owned the ring. Yes, this is the owner of that ring. The great, great grandson. Just the great grandson. Great grandson of, of John Calhoun. C. Calhoun, yes. Was captaining the ship. Yes. I'm okay. not sure that's the right term, but yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not a sailor. What you want from me? All of these ships were new, less than five years old. They cost millions of dollars, and they were built to last for decades. Mm, but this one didn't. Mm. For years, these ships weren't allowed to do what they were meant to do. And they were meant to go fast. That's what destroyers do. They're not as big as battleships, which are really the big monsters of the sea. Uh, so the difference between battleships and destroyers... Um, have you ever played Battleship? Yes. Yeah. So Many the, times. The best way I can put it, um, battleships have four holes, and it takes four hits to sink them, and destroyers have three holes. Like George Washington's outhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lovely. That's a whole different story. Whole different kind of <laughs> bomb dropping. Um, <laughs> you take it there. Why do you take it there? That's where I live. <laughs> yeah. Get out of the gutter. <laughs> yeah. I'm Pennywise down there with balloon. Oh, you know? With those glasses on, I see evil on you. Oh, I wow. see this evil. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it's just exhaustion. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So these destroyers, they hadn't been allowed to go fast for years because the government wanted to conserve fuel after World War I. But the newest budget loosened things up a bit, and it was time to see what they could do. So after Fleet Week in San Francisco, 1923... By the way, this was not the most celebratory fleet week, which usually involves like saying like, hey, we're the Navy and come party on our boat and we'll party in the city and yay, yay, yay. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't the most celebratory because just weeks earlier, also in San Francisco, President Warren G. Harding had died. Oh. Yeah. So they're all mournful. A little bit, a little bit. And just a week before he died, he was on a Navy transport ship coming back from a tour of Alaska when his ship rammed into another Navy ship and almost destroyed it. What? So nobody was injured, but it was but a little embarrassing for the Navy. No one was happy. Right. So we're, they're like, we're just going to lay low for a while. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were tens of thousands of people in Seattle that were waiting for Harding to come ashore and, and do all these celebrations, but they were delayed because one big boat ran into the other. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That, wah, wah. that might even have been a small factor. In decisions that followed that the Navy made to prove they were strong and knew what they were doing. Eek. Yeah. So now they had like a masculinity complex that they had to fulfill. That tells a good story. I'm not 100% sure that's true, but I really want to believe that these events led into each other. So we'll, okay. go, with it. we'll go with it. Oh, I see. I thought yeah. you were like, that's a nice way to put it, but I don't I don't buy what you're saying i'm like oh, i just made a reference I, you don't need to you don't need to fully get on board i don't i don't know with my masculinity <laughs> complex theory <laughs> i don't know that i buy it but if we're walking down the street i will point to it in the storefront okay and let you know about it okay all right great <laughs> yes i don't so the navy was saying that you know hey ramming into things are bad not gonna happen again mm -hmm. also 
Time to go fast. <laughs> so they received orders to do a training mission, simulating wartime conditions where they had to go straight from San Francisco to San Diego in 24 hours at a speed of 20 knots. I don't know what that translates to. It's about 23 miles per hour. Seems kind of slow. Well, it's around the same speed that big cruise ships go today, and it's fast for a big thing in the water. Okay. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Yes. I'm not going to fully get on board with it, but I might point to it in the window. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, so along the way, they were going to fire some torpedoes, practice their war games. This was an exercise. It was a test. It wasn't supposed to be groundbreaking or challenging or dangerous. Great. Nature had some other ideas. Natural elements like weather and like currents and also human nature. Like human error? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are, <laughs> there are 14 ships. I'm telling you guys, he's evil today. You should have seen the look in his eyes when he made that grunt. Uh, you know, uh. So there are 14 ships. They're following one another in close formation. Ooh, that sounds bad because they don't stop fast. No, they don't. Oh, gosh. That's the problem. Yeah. The leader, um, the flagship, is the USS Delphi, and it's commanded by Commodore Edward H. Watson. Now, this was Watson's first time in charge of a unit, <sighs> and his position it meant... did not go well for him, I have a feeling. Yeah, his position meant that what he says goes, and where he goes, the other ships follow. Mm-hmm. Now, flagship. Yeah, that's right. So they didn't have GPS back then. Instead, you relied on what you could see, like landmarks, if you could see land. And if you couldn't, the position of the sun or the stars. You hold your hand up to the stars, like yeah, Moana. Exactly. Um, and compasses, two Way, kinds of compasses. There's wayfinding. A, yeah. So there's a gyro compass, and then there's a magnetic one. They had those. TMI, TMI. And this was in, <laughs> this was 1923, so there was a relatively new technology, RDF, or radio direction finding. It was cutting-edge science. Is that like sonar from the bottom? Not exactly sonar. It's like radio waves, like triangulating where you are. That's what sonar is, are. isn't it? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, tell me about all the things you know about sonar. So, I, yeah, sonar is when you get a bunch of uh, bats out of a cave. That's not sonar you ask either. them where the enemy is. <laughs> That's not sonar either. Well, they use sonar. I think they use something else, and I, I, I know it, and Emerson even studied it recently, and I can't remember <sighs> the name. Echolocation? Thank you. They go, and then it bounces off. So I guess that is sonar. <laughs> I got an eye roll. Someone talk to him for me. <laughs> um, so the technology, it wasn't perfect, uh, but it could be a really useful tool. Unless, like Commodore Watson, you didn't trust it and instead relied on an ancient technique known as dead reckoning. That, can't, that doesn't sound um, like life-promoting. <laughs> no, I love that phrase, though. So dead reckoning, since you asked, is when you determine <laughs> your location based on the last known place that you're sure that you were and the speed that you've been going since then. And you factor in conditions like the wind and the currents. Like an algebra problem. Kind of, yeah. It can be pretty reliable, dead reckoning, but it's prone to error. And most of the things that can cause dead reckoning to be unreliable were all happening that evening in between mm. San Francisco and San Diego. This is a short ride. It's, I mean, in a car, but on a boat, it takes a little longer, like 24 hours or so. Okay. Yeah. Like they're not going for days and days. No, they're saying. not. This they're is not. just a short little hop, skip, and a jump. Well, so, I mean, Gilligan's Island was just a three-hour tour, <laughs> and we know how that went. <laughs> 
it's also fictional. <laughs> and then, well, the coastline, okay, you know how the 101 freeway, it's a north-south freeway. All the odd number ones are. Mm-hmm. But for a good stretch through the San Fernando Valley, it runs straight east-west. The California coast does the same thing. It's sneaky. California coast goes east-west? In certain parts, yeah. When you get around Santa Barbara, it cuts over, and it's like straight east-west instead of north-south. Okay. So Commodore Watson, he was aboard the USS Delphi, leading 13 other ships, including the Young, which was captained by William Calhoun. And Watson, he had asked for radio coordinates of their location several times and gotten responses, but he didn't like those responses. He thought that those had the ship closer to the coast and further north than it really was, based on his own dead reckoning. But here's the thing about dead reckoning. It's based on the speed the boat is going, but they're guessing their speed based on the rotation of the propellers and taking into account the expected behavior of the currents in that area. This is too much math and physics for me. Oh, it's all going to make sense. But the currents were a real problem. They'd already caused a male steamship, the SS Cuba, to shipwreck nearby that night. Did they know about that yet? They had just found out about it, and they're like, oh, that sucks. This, <laughs> this area of the Pacific, near the Channel Islands, around Honda Point, it was known for unusually rough currents. So can't really trust the currents. And some people believe that the currents here were especially rough and unpredictable because of something that had happened seven days earlier and 5,000 miles away. Mm. The Great Kanto Earthquake in Japan. It was wow. a... Yeah. Massive 7.9 earthquake. It mm. lasted between four and seven minutes. Oh, that's hor- like horrific. Yeah, it killed between 100 and 150,000 people. Oh, my God. It caused typhoons, devastating fires, chaos, violence in the streets. It was horrific. And it was thought at the time, but we're not sure, that its effect on ocean currents may have contributed to the Honda Point disaster. Mm. Where's the name Honda coming from? Um, it's a little unclear. It sounds like a Japanese name or something, but it wasn't. And it might mean deep. There's different interpretations of where it came from. Okay. But it was associated with this uh, little area for a long time. Okay. Yeah. So the currents were wild that night. And basically, like behind the ship or the back of it, the stern. So imagine that you're swimming and the waves are like behind you lifting your feet out of the water. Mm-hmm. There's a naval historian named uh, Drakiniful who talks about this in his YouTube channel. It's fascinating stuff, if that's your cup of tea. But he talks about how when the propeller of a boat is pushed out of the water, mm-hmm. it really screws with your dead reckoning. Because for one... Because you're not going the speed that you thought. Yeah, your propeller is spinning a lot faster when it's out of the water. Mm-hmm. And, and it's spinning without actually contributing to forward motion. Exactly. So you probably think you're a lot further ahead than you are based on those rotations. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Yeah. So those two things alone could have made Watson think that they were further south than they were. And despite the radio coordinates saying, hey, you're not where you think you are, Watson thought that they were at the mouth of the Santa Barbara Channel. And that's a place where you want to take a sharp left. Mm. And that's, that's what the Delphi did. At night, in rough currents, in very thick fog, still going strong at 20 knots. So he thought what they were saying was wrong because yeah. his dead reckoning was different. Yes, he didn't but trust he this tr- new technology. Oh, but he trusted the dead reckoning even though there were, you know, common pitfalls. Yes. He didn't listen to the pitfalls. Right. This is probably novice mistake. Yeah. I feel like an experienced captain might understand that the dead reckoning 
perhaps isn't accurate yeah. because of the weather. Yeah, it's almost unfathomable what he did. Um, well, actually, it was literally fathomable. <laughs> Watson could have used a tool called a fathometer. Fathometer? Yeah. To fathom it? Yes, to take depth readings to make sure as they're strolling along in the fog that they're not going to rip themselves apart. But to do that, to do that crucial safety step, they would have needed to slow down. And he chose not to. Gosh, this is a lot like the Titanic. Full speed ahead. Yeah. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, so based on Dead Reckoning alone, he had the Delphi make a sharp left turn into the Santa Barbara Channel, but it wasn't actually the Santa Barbara Channel yet they were pretty much right where the radio tower said they were at an incredibly rough, rocky cove called Honda Point. Some of the rocks you could see, but most of them you couldn't. And this place was also called the Devil's Jawbone. Ooh. It had been notorious for causing shipwrecks for centuries. Oh, and uh, our novice flagship captain went right for it. Yeah, Commodore Watson. Mm. Um, first, actually, the young Calhoun ship was the first to hit something. Really? Yeah. They were going along at full Where speed. Where was he in the formation? He was technically behind the, the Delphi, ship? but okay. to the side. So he just came upon something first. So when you say the first, it means more than one ship. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is going to be really horrible. Yeah. Um. So they were going along in That's the fog. That's why it's called a disaster. Yes. There's more than one ship. I'm getting it now. Yes. This is real. I'm scared. Um, don't be scared. We're okay. I know we're okay. I'm just like the anticipation. I'm just imagining them all crash into each other. Um, not exactly. Okay. But it's not good. This does not sound good. So the young is going along at 20 knots when the whole ship is almost lifted into the air. What? They hit an underwater pinnacle reef. It was like a sharp speed bump. <sighs> when the ship came crashing down, it had gashes all along oh the side and it basically tipped over to one side. Oh, wow. The waves pushed it up against a rock ledge, which is maybe the only thing that kept it from not completely sinking. Mm -hmm. But it was almost totally submerged. And it sounds like torn apart. Yeah. Calhoun did not order his men to abandon ship 
because they would have been lost in the crashing waves with no place to go. Mm. So he ordered them to hang on to the outside of the ship. So the ship is sideways. They're crawling through windows. When you say sideways, it's on its side. It's on its side, yeah. The ship is on its side. They're crawling through windows. They're crawling through windows to get onto the side of the ship that's sticking out of the water. So scary. And these men, like, this was night. Some of them had been sleeping. A lot of them were in their underwear. Oh, God. Um, oh, this is awful. Um, one of the men swam underwater into the ship <gasps> to find a fire axe. Oh. And then he used it to break the glass portals so that the men would have something to actually hold on to. Oh, God. Um, they used ropes to loosely tie themselves together. Oh. Um, Did the, they have any lifeboats? They do come into play at one point. Though. Okay. Um, while they're here, the fog had cleared almost just enough for them to have a front row seat for the Delphi ahead of them to crash straight into another rock. Oh, God. One after another, five more ships crashed against the rocks. Ugh. Some of them also got close enough to the young and the Delphi. Um, one ship came up to the young to see if they could save them. But because the young was on its side, its propeller was still going, and it tore apart the hull of that ship, oh, causing that shoot. ship to sink. Oh, my gosh. No good deed. No. Where is Watson? Was his name? Watson is aboard the Delphi, and they're, where, they're up against some rocks. They're trying to get men out. He's they're like, up against... darn, I should have listened to that sonar. He still thought they were in the wrong place. He thought they were even further south, running into one of the Channel Islands, but <sighs> they weren't there yet. <sighs> yeah, so at one point, he said, okay, men, whoa, 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 turn left early. We, we turn left too late. But if they had turned left early, they would have hit the shore even more. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. Seven ships were lost that night. Out of how many? Fourteen. Gosh. Two, two more ships got stranded against the rocks, but managed to get free. And the ship was okay? Eventually. Those? It needed to be repaired. Five of the ships did not hit any rocks. They had enough warning to stay back. And they'd been paying more attention to the radio coordinates. Oh, so they were um, probably not following as closely? Yeah, it sounds like it. Wow. Screw this Watson dude. They were thinking he's a novice. He's not listening to the evidence. Yeah, maybe. Or um, they thought, hey, the dead reckoning isn't matching up quite to this. What's going on? Maybe we should slow down a little, mm -hmm. little bit and investigate. Not smart. Yeah. 23 men died. <sighs> and 20 of those were aboard the young Calhoun ship. Oh, wow. Why? Why do you think there were so many casualties on that ship? They went sideways and Because his quickly. name is Calhoun. That's why. <laughs> um, I think it was because the ship went to its side and sunk very quickly. And men just, some of them didn't Couldn't have a chance out. to get out. Um, or they were swept to sea, really. Because when the ships were explored later, there were no bodies found. So they think all the men were swept out to sea at that <sighs> point. It's really tragic. Um, it could have been much worse, though. If Calhoun had ordered them to abandon ship, even more men probably would have been lost at sea. Mm-hmm. There's a book called The Tragedy at Honda by Charles A. Lockwood and uh, Hans Christian Adamson. And it tells the story pretty well, even if some parts might be a little melodramatic. <laughs> there's a <Sorry>. part. <laughs> you and your critiques. Well, there's OK. There's a part where this guy, Peterson, he's clinging to safety on the young next to Calhoun. And Peterson has an idea. He's going to take this rope. And he's going to swim like 75 or 100 yards through these crashing waves. And by the way, oh, there's like fuel and oil everywhere in the water. It's really yeah. dangerous. Um, but he's going to take this rope. He's going to swim to another ship so that they can get the men on the Out. young to uh -huh. safety. Um, That's brave of him. Yeah. And there's sirens. There's screaming. There's waves crashing. Mm -hmm. uh, and according to this book, 
this guy Peterson, he's holding the rope, about to make this treacherous swim, and he turns to Calhoun and he says, permission to go ashore, sir? (laughs) And Calhoun responds, permission granted, Pete, and God go with you. Oh, yeah. Now, maybe maybe I got a little teary reading That's that, but I Spielberg still think it's a little, right there. Uh, it's a little melodramatic. But, I mean... You know, that's not the point that, that I got to I mean, read. I feel like Spielberg could nail it. I think so, too. I think... Um, it's the Saving Private Ryan feel. A little there. bit. Yeah. 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 So Pete made it in the swim. They were able to tie the rope to the other ship. They used it along with the life raft to, like, ferry the survivors back and forth to That's safety. That's how the life rafts were used. Yes. Okay. Um, but it was a night of hell with lots mm-hmm. of many tragedies and lots of little acts of heroism, too, that yeah. contributed to making the disaster less tragic than it could have been. What came to be known as the Honda Point disaster, it was big news. Mm. There was a whole process of inquiry, and the captains were all court-martialed for losing their ships and, and men. Yeah. Like, you got lost, you crashed the ship, you weren't listening to evidence. What the hell happened? Exactly. Let's review. <laughs> yeah. So each of these captains testified, and for the most part, it was like Navy jargon about navigation and details of the wreck. Mm-hmm. But one person's testimony stood out. Oh, yeah? And Calhoun's? That, that was William L. Calhoun. Oh, yeah? What did he say? As he read the names of his 20 crew members that died, he broke mm. down in tears on the oh, stand. Oh, God. He talked about how all of his men were heroes that night. And when he was done, he said to the admiral in charge, Admiral, I want to apologize for letting my feelings get away from me. I, And then he broke down again, and he was let off the stand. Oh, gosh. That's really, really sad. Yeah. So the big question that everybody had was what could have caused this? Mm-hmm. And there were lots of answers thrown around. Um, it was strange currents from the Great Kanto Earthquake, um, mm-hmm. or it was magnetic interference on the compass from a solar eclipse that wouldn't happen for another three days. <laughs> there was a lot of speculation, but in the end, Commodore Watson took responsibility. Well, at least he did that. Yeah. His insistence on going with the dead reckoning instead of the radio bearings or instead of slowing down to figure out why there was such a difference, mm-hmm. um, he owned that that was the cause of the loss of those seven ships and 23 wow. men's lives. Wow, that's a big... Standing up to that ownership takes a lot of guts. Yeah. So um, I feel like while he made mistakes and he was a novice, I'm glad he did the right thing. Definitely. Um, he was demoted in rank considerably. Which he should be. Yes. But, <laughs> You've got some more learning to do. <laughs> but his example of taking responsibility, it got him a lot of respect. Yeah. I, I suddenly I suddenly respect him. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, Calhoun, for his part, was commended for his leadership in the face of tragedy. And he went on to play a big part in the Southern Pacific naval efforts during World War II. He had a nice career. Mm-hmm. And he retired as an admiral. Okay. The Navy, they recovered what they could from the wrecks. But not that ring. No. For years, you could actually see the remains of the boats sticking out of the water. Oh. Until they... It's really disturbing. Yeah, they decided to blow up the holes of the boats so that you couldn't see, basically, the embarrassment sticking out of the water. Erase history? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe there was a safety element, too, because if you see these boats, you might be more likely to want to dive there. And it's not a good place to dive. <laughs> But this did become a popular spot for divers, uh, even though it was a dangerous one, because those currents are no joke. Mm-hmm. And it was 63 years later, on an unnaturally calm day with the water like a swimming pool, mm-hmm. when Dan Purdy was diving in Honda Point and recovered that Navy signet ring wow. belonging 
to Captain Calhoun. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Not just any of the men yeah. that were lost that night or experienced a disaster. Actually, Captain Calhoun. Yeah. And that brings us to Act 3, our final act, The Ring and the Sting. Oh. When Dan Purdy found this ring and researched its history, his friend David Lee found that Calhoun had died 23 years earlier. Oh, wow. But Calhoun's, but Calhoun's wife, Rosalie, was still alive. Yeah. So the California wreck divers, they were known for having the cool stuff that they found displayed in their homes. Mm-hmm. Whether they were porthole covers or door handles or broken gauges, other little brass artifacts, they called it brass fever. Like, okay. this is what they wanted. This is what they it's loved. Like their trophy. Yeah. They were little pieces of history with stories behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Calhoun ring that Purdy found was, he said, the apex of his diving career. Wow. And it won him the club's award for best find of the year. Yeah, of, of ever. <laughs> right, right. Someone offered him $1,500 for the ring. That's not enough. He said no. He decided to contact Rosalie instead. Oh, good for him. He called her up, introduced himself over the phone, and he said that he had been diving in Honda Point. And Rosalie said, did you find the ring? <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah. That's when Dan Purdy decided that he had to return the ring to the Calhouns. Talk about losing your emotions. Did right? He, did he lose it? He I mean, probably lost it. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. That's like a dream. I I've know. had dreams like that where I'm like, did this happen? Yeah. And then someone in the dream is like, it was this. And you're <laughs> like, oh my God, that's what I thought. And then you're like, oh, this is disturbing. I've got to wake up. That's that's what this is. Yeah. I feel I feel chills. Oh, nice, nice. He decided to return the ring, not quite for free. He asked for $400. Are you kidding? <laughs> that, what? That barely covered the cost of the dive. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> I loved him up until, like, I learned that. Come I on, mean, give the widow her ring. Maybe it was her idea to pay him something. And you then know? you say, no, this is yours. This is yours. Your husband suffered a disaster. Yeah. And this is yours. Yeah. So let me find the owners and then demand a reward. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, maybe. They do that for dogs. Right? He drove down to San Diego. He gave it to her, and she put it right on. She said that her husband didn't talk about the disaster much, but he did talk about that ring. Oh, wow. And the other ring that he had alongside it, a Navy ring belonging to his great-grandfather, John C. Calhoun. What? Did he lose that one, too? Yes, that was also he lost, lost both in the wrecks. Yes, and he and Purdy found one of them. Yes. So after hearing that, Dan Purdy. And, oh God! Did he go back out there? Um, he did. He and his girlfriend, later his wife, uh, also a diver. They decided they needed to find that ring. Oh, well, that's a difficult feat. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a difficult feat to me. It was. They they attempt- talk about a needle in a haystack. They attempted to dive at Honda Point nine more times, but eight of those it was too dangerous because of the conditions. And they never found that ring that we know of, and that means yeah, that he didn't want he didn't want to have to <laughs> yeah hand anything else over. I think maybe maybe for a mere four hundred dollars. <laughs> that means that it's still out there. A little piece of John C. Calhoun lurks at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, in one of the most dangerous parts of the California coast. Wow. Yeah. So, do you think they'll be renaming Calhoun Avenue? We're gonna get to that, but first. A little more about the California wreck divers. Okay. So they were probably already on the government's radar. But the story about Dan Purdy returning the Calhoun ring, it was reprinted across the country, and it might have put an even bigger target on their back. 
Hmm. Because technically, what they were doing, recovering objects from shipwrecks, was illegal. Huh, that's strange. These were um, protected parks and protected archaeological sites. Mm. Yeah. That's that's tricky. It is tricky. But there's some basic good-naturedness there. I think so. I found a ring and I'm returning it. Yeah, and the California wreck divers, they were also giving talks about diving and historical shipwrecks like across the country. They were donating a lot of things to maritime museums. They were about recovering things and sharing the history of them. Um, but that's not exactly how they were treated. Mm-hmm. They were a nonprofit group full of passionate people who were practicing a long tradition of salvaging items from wrecks. But the fact is, these were protected archaeological sites, and taking anything from them was illegal. Oh, wow. Now, were these laws enforced very Didn't, often? Did Purdy know this? He must have known this. They all knew this. Okay, but he took it anyway, and people had their trophies anyway. So it doesn't seem like that unheard of to take things it wasn't and these laws were not enforced very often because the national park service didn't have the resources to police this kind of thing right so it was rarely prosecuted but the park service decided to make examples out of this group oh wow they found their chance when they saw a flyer for a three-day scuba diving trip chartered by the california wreck divers club they needed to get a couple of their own on board Undercover. It's like a sting. It's a yes. It's a Mission Impossible uh, double agent situation. It would be the first undercover operation of the National Park Service. Undercover on, on California the, waters. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Well, apparently the NPS. Oh gosh, it's so sneaky. I know. Apparently the NPS had done like dozens of undercover operations a year in other places, just not the California waters. And it wasn't just archaeological protection, but they were, you know, stuff like drugs and poaching. Right. That I get. But this seems like a I agree. It seems like a strange place to throw resources. Yeah. Let's prevent people from from finding things. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, so if you're in a national park and a stranger comes up to you and says, hey, do you have some drugs or (laughs) hey, do you want to go do some poaching? It might be a park ranger. You say no. Yeah. And don't poach things. Don't poach things, yeah. Don't do drugs. No, don't poach drugs. Especially right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so the National Park Service, they needed two people on that diving trip to take down this whole collecting stuff from Shipwrecks Club. And they settled on Mark Senning and Yvonne Menard, a husband and wife ranger team. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, they'd never gone undercover before. But who would suspect a young couple of being undercover park rangers? And they are a young couples. So they yeah. got that part down. They posed as a paramedic and a school teacher, and they mm. joined the 30-some other people for the trip. Uh, a few people did suspect them. Really? Yeah. One asked Mark if he was a state commissioner, and Mark said no, because he wasn't. <laughs> um, well, they were taking pictures of what the other divers found, which wasn't that unusual. Other people were taking pictures. Yeah. Um, at night, they would take notes. And they they used a two way radio to communicate with rangers on land in code, <laughs> and um, no one and people noticed this. I don't think so. I think they went uh, in the bathroom, and like the code was for dinner, we'll be bringing in seven or eight abalone, oh. and that meant we'll have seven or eight violations to report when we land. Ivan mm. had taken twenty seven pages of notes. That's a lot of notes. Yeah, for something like this. So I th- mean, yeah. So by far the most exciting find from the trip came from a mailing ship called the Winfield Scott that wrecked in 1853 on its way from San Diego to Panama. Recovered from that ship was a gold $2.50 coin from 1843. Wow. And the man who recovered it... Purdy? Dan Purdy. 
Wow, is he, he's like a master yeah. of his art. When they came into port in Santa Barbara, um, there were six law officers waiting for them. What? Two from the National Park Service, two from the National Marine Fisheries, and two from the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department. <sighs> Poor Purdy. Yeah. That's when Mark revealed himself. Uh, I don't know if he like took off a mask and had like a ranger <laughs> suit or something. Like like the Mission Impossible masks. Yeah. Like, I'm actually not him. I'm Purdy. Yes. Um, the divers were pissed. All um, the divers? They felt violated. Yeah. Yeah, from from the lying couple. Yeah. Yvonne said that it was super uncomfortable for her. Um, I guess one of the divers had just like invited them into their home moments before and all of a sudden they're like being arrested. I mean, that's what undercover is. Yeah. The officers were searching for the recovered items. And when they heard about Dan Purdy's 1843 coin, <sighs> they took him below deck and strip searched him. Ooh. They needed to get their hands on that booty. Is it as smooth as yours? <sighs> I, I, you know, but they didn't find that coin. Where was it? We don't know. Did he throw it back into the ocean? <laughs> like Titanic? <laughs> yeah. Um, Whoops. <laughs> I, I doubt it. Um, so from the start, the idea of this was to make an example out of these divers, to make it clear that sometimes the National Park Service will gotcha. enforce these laws and hard. Ugh. They went after 20 people with 32 misdemeanor criminal charges and 31 civil charges. Wow. Only seven of the 63 charges were dropped. Uh, wow. Yeah. The divers, they, most of them were fined $750 and three years probation, and they were required to notify rangers if they were ever to enter the Channel Islands National Park again. But in the civil cases, some of the fines were $20,000 or more. Oh, wow. They were making an example out of these folks. It's really a shame to do it this way. I mean, I get that that strikes fear into every other diver. Yeah. But it's just... I mean, it's a I real question. Because from the, the diver standpoint, the wreck divers, these wrecks, the artifacts down there are literally rotting. They're not going to last forever. They're right. going away. The National Park Service is saying these are protected archaeological sites that need to be preserved, but they're not but doing they're not anything being, to preserve them. They're not being preserved. That's so the thing. I, I definitely get how this is a weird conflict between the law. Yeah. At the same point, you Agreed. don't you don't necessarily want people to be scavenging looting. everything and, and looting. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what the answer is, but this seemed like a rough response. Yes. Agreed. Dan Purdy eventually he gave up fighting the charges and he agreed to pay ten thousand dollars. <gasps> Shit. And he was ordered to return the gold coin. Oh my gosh, he's probably like Rosaline. <laughs> <laughs> you Remember know. that four hundred you yeah. gave me? <laughs> Can I have like ninety five more? I know what ninety five hundred. Like no good deed goes unpunished. Like mm, you know no, to that's find that I'm ring saying. and return it, and then to have this happen. Mm. Oddly, though, what happened with the coin? The coin that the National Park Service received from him was from eighteen fifty three. Ten years later than the one he'd shown off on the boat. Hmm. When asked about this by a reporter, Purdy said that the authorities seemed to be satisfied, and he didn't have any further comment on that. <laughs> um, the authorities, by the way, said, yeah, they snookered us. <laughs> um, wow. But but they deserved it, maybe. Well, they said it's embarrassing that, you know, we didn't get they were that snookered. coin. Uh. But they also said the coin really wasn't the point of all mm. of this, and we got the prosecutions that we were there for. It just all leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Mm -hmm. Dan Purdy may have given up William Calhoun's Navy ring, but I'd like to think that his family still has that 1843 gold coin 
a coin that was minted when John C. Calhoun was still roaming the earth. Hmm. Yeah. Deep breath. Tragically, Dan Purdy died in 2000 while diving off the coast of Catalina Island. What? Doing what he loved. He died during a dive? How? Um, I don't have the details on that. He may have been trying to salvage an anchor, and it sounds like something went wrong. I don't know exactly what. Oh, my God. Ugh. Yeah. I'm hurt. My heart hurts. I'm sorry. For so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah. This is a story of accidents. Lots of accidents and questions about how to destroy history. Yeah. Or not. As an epilogue, I want to bring us back to Calhoun Avenue in the Mm -hmm. San Fernando Valley. I reached out to the Los Angeles Public Library to see if they could help shed some light on the origins of Calhoun Avenue. And yeah, you did. <laughs> a, a librarian there in the history and genealogy department, oh, which I didn't know existed, but I'm happy does. Uh, Nicholas uh, Balia, mm-hmm. he got back to me. And I just want to take a moment to say how important librarians are. All librarians, really, but especially the ones working in public libraries and schools. The service they provide is so essential to the community. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just a valuable, unappreciated resource. Yes, I can see that. And what they do, helping kids connect to books, fostering literacy, um, providing resources to people who truly need help. Mm -hmm. So much of what they do, um, it has vastly more value than helping me with a podcast. They do that, too. They sound kind. Nicholas, the librarian, got back to me. Thank you, kind Nicholas. With the truth about Calhoun Avenue and how it got its name. Wow. Calhoun Avenue was named after a local man named James H. Calhoun. So not even after the Calhoun we're talking about? Nope. He came from Montana in 1911, and he was one of the original pioneer settlers of Van Nuys. Oh, man. He does not appear to be related to John C. Calhoun in any way. Okay. Okay. Um, I did find one article about his tragic death. Jeez, mm, is there any death in here that's normal? I'm sorry. Like just not tragic? Uh, but James Calhoun, he was called a man among men and a source of inspiration to all with whom he came in contact. And it was said that he was one of the leading men in our local community development and always loyal and enthusiastic over the possibilities of the San Fernando Valley. Mm-hmm. And all he got was an avenue. <sighs> yeah. And about that tragic death, because that's what this episode is is really about. James Calhoun was visiting his ranch property alone. He lowered himself into a well pit to repair a pumping machine. And he brought a light down with him, which was on a wire. Somehow the cord broke and it came in contact with his forehead. (gasps) He was electrocuted in a well? The Van Nuys News reported that the ground on which he stood was very moist, causing a perfect circuit. Jaw drop. I'm... Yeah. I want to say... You know, um, what is the word about Darwin? Oh, I don't know. Um, all's well that ends well? No, you know, I want to say like Darwin's laws, but um, oh, this yeah. seems like a common, that I don't know, it seems like a mistake, easy to make. Yeah. Although, yeah, don't mix electricity and water. You're in a well. Well, I think the problem was that there was something wrong with the wire or the cord. But maybe he didn't realize. What year was this? This was 1919. This is definitely tragic, and yeah. this is why I don't fix wells. I, I feel wondered. like I, <laughs> I feel like um, it would be easy to die doing that. Whether it's electricity falling into it, whatever the case may be, it just seems like a dangerous job. Yeah, kind of like mining, you know. For sure, yeah. Um, 
I, I feel bad for him, though. That's really sad. Agreed. And he yeah. sounds like a nice guy. Yeah. Now all that remains of him in the valley is a street that stops and starts a dozen times and on <laughs> yes. its most illustrious corner has a guitar center. But I feel a little bit better driving past it now, mm-hmm. knowing that it has not a damn thing to do with John C. Calhoun. Yeah, that's true. But it still has to do with a tragic death. Well, those... But you're an optimist, aren't you? I'm an optimist, <laughs> yes. I like to think the well is half full. Oh my gosh. So that's the story of John C. Calhoun's great-grandson, William L. Calhoun, and the Honda disaster, and Dan Purdy's recovery of his ring, and a man named James Calhoun, who was a pioneer settler in Van Nuys, California. This was a great episode. I felt like it wasn't too complex. I felt like it was to the point, and ha- but still had lots of interesting characters, interesting decisions. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I, Pol- political angles like i thought really good episode this was my figurative deep dive into that street name like i found an article mm-hmm. and then i started researching it and then i read more about purdy yeah because first there was the ring recovery and then i'm like whoa what's this 1990 story mm. about the national park service <laughs> by the way your rabbit holes lead you to some cool places yeah you do not want to screw with the national park service okay okay all right just don't do it but if you're in a park and you're like, hey, I think I might find some cool thing here this and take it home. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. They will sue you. They. You think Smokey the Bear just works on forest fires? <laughs> okay. No. Okay. Settle yeah. down, Tiger. <laughs> In our next episode, we are going to hear from historian and author Karen L. Cox about the myth of the lost cause. That's the idea that the South didn't secede from the Union or fight the Civil War oh, to preserve slavery. Yeah. That's going to be uh, juicy. Yeah, and speaking of what you brought up today, we're going to be looking at the history behind Confederate monuments in public places. <gasps> oh my gosh, a continuation of this. This is very interesting. I'm, I want to hear more. I, well, you'll be the first to hear it. <laughs> awesome. It will not fall upon dead ears. Good, good. <laughs> With dead reckoning. <laughs> no dead reckoning here. No, no echolocation from those ears. I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, As always, if you like what you heard, spread the word. It means so much to us when you share the podcast, when you reach out. And please consider joining our Patreon family for some fun extras. You can find a link to that and more at our website, plodpod.com. One of the things as a patron that you'll have access to is a few episodes of Kinder Plotting, which is a podcast that Howard started with our daughter Emerson when she was in kindergarten. And it has equally interesting historical tidbits and stories, but more um, aligned for a young child's ears. Yes. So it's a fun way to learn about history, but more for kids. I love it. And I can't wait to do more of those with her now yes. that she's, oh my God, going to be going into third grade. I know. She's going to be telling me stories. I I think she will. Yes. She is a storyteller, just like you. Aw. Thank you for plotting along with us. Thank you for plotting. Like a baby.